0: I don't know, someone joked this morning that we've got the B team here this morning, and I agree, because if you were here last week, it was a wonderful time in God's Word with Pastor Daniel preaching. Thank you, brother. That was so well done, Um, so clear, so concise. Uh, My family and I got to enjoy that uh, on the way home uh, from visiting a, a national park in Montana near the border of Canada after looking out at God's creation and then hearing that, uh, that uh, sermon about God being maker of heaven and earth. And it was just such a sweet time. And uh, Joy even asked our kids and everyone was got a chance to respond, what aspect of all of God's creation this week that we got to see uh, through all, all those national parks, uh, caused us to think about God most. Uh, and, and many of them had different responses. And, and yet mine was not something I even saw in a national park, not, not a, a great sight during the day or an animal that you could see far off, but it was, it was the nighttime sky. And we were out in the middle of nowhere, and got to go outside, and it just happened to be the time of the month when the moon was a new moon, so it wasn't shining. It was actually below the horizon, which made it even darker, and really, I think, for the first time, got to go out and see one of those skies that you think, you know, people had these amazing cameras to take these amazing pictures and this, that, or the other, and I realized, no. You just have to be in the right place at the right time to be able to see God's creation like that. And I have some pictures of the stars from my iPhone that would just wow you. And I was just in awe and yet was reminded that even as high and as beautiful as the stars of the sky are and the galaxy of the Milky Way that shone brightly there in that Montana sky is, Jesus Christ, as we sang this morning, shines even brighter. He is even uh, more sweet and deserves our worship uh, in which the stars do not. And so I appreciated that so much. And and it is... uh, He is deserving of our praise. And as maker of heaven and earth, not only does He deserve our our praise, um, but, but we ought to submit to Him. As... God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, as we're looking at the Apostles' Creed, says He deserves our praise, He deserves our worship, but He also deserves our submission. Uh, He is God. He is Maker of heaven and earth. And if He has made us, if He is Maker of heaven and earth and He's made man in His image, as He said in Genesis 1, then We have to treat every human life from the point of conception to the point of death with dignity and sanctity. We have to submit to Him. If He's maker of heaven and earth and and He's made us male and female according to Genesis 1, then we have to submit to Him. And and we have to uh, submit to Him as he has said in Genesis 1, male and female, we're not able to redefine our identity by what we feel or what we want. And if God is maker of heaven and earth, as Daniel so clearly explained from God's word, and he's made us male and female to be together in marriage, as he's described in Genesis 2, we're not free to redefine marriage as we feel. You can see how just one line if we actually tease it out to its end is an assault against our culture. And and really if we're honest it's an assault against our own hearts. Uh, that's no different in that line of maker and heaven and earth but it's true of the line that we're going to look at today. Jesus and in Jesus Christ his only Son, our Lord. That is not just a definition. It, it really is an assault against uh, our culture. It distinguishes Christians from all the other religions of the world. It's so important, and we have to consider it. And I'm thankful, as as I was reminded from a, a podcast that I was listening to this week, uh, the fact that... These truths that that we're considering in the Apostles' Creed were read in a place and in a time in the past couple weeks uh, in which millions upon millions would hear them. Uh, Something that's happened recently is the death of, of, of the Queen of England and her funeral was broadcast around the world and what the Archbishop of Canterbury did in the opening and closing of her funeral was read from the Book of Common Prayer, which has such great scriptural truth and was proclaimed to millions upon millions these truths that we're considering. So consider the opening uh, of, this, uh, of her funeral. It says, O merciful God! the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. And whosoever believeth shall live, though he die. And whosoever liveth and believeth in him shall not die eternally, who has taught us by the holy apostle St. Paul not to be sorry as men without hope for them that sleep in him. You can hear the truths of the creed ring out in that prayer from the Book of Common prayer that was read at her funeral. Or consider the closing. Go forth, O Christian soul, from this world in the name of God, the Father Almighty, who created thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, who suffered for thee. In the name of the Holy Spirit, who was poured out upon thee, And anointed thee in communion with all the blessed saints and aided by the angels and archangels and all the armies of the heavenly hosts. May thy portion this day be in peace and in thy dwelling in the heavenly Jerusalem. Amen. Now I'm thankful that those words were read in such a way that millions upon millions heard them, but I wonder how many of them would say, as the Creed says, I believe in that God, God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. They po- probably thought it was a reverent prayer and probably glossed over it, but I'm thankful that it was read in that way, and I pray that many would have heard those words and be drawn to the Lord Himself, even more so in the Scriptures and in and through a local church. But this third line of the creed, it continues as the first line of the creed did. I believe in. Not I believe this about God, but I believe not only this about God, but I believe in that God. I'm not only believing truths about Him, but I'm putting my faith and trust in Him for The salvation of my soul and for everything that I need in this life as maker of heaven and earth. And the third line continues similarly, Um, taking uh, the intro of that first line, I believe in, it continues and says, and, that's not all we believe the first two lines, but and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And that phrase sounds very similar to a phrase that that we've considered as a church and one that you've probably seen on someone's bumper sticker, that fish, that Christian fish that inside has several Greek letters that say the word ichthus, which is fish in Greek, but each letter representing a, a statement of who we believe Jesus to be. Uh, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Uh, Each one of those letters in Greek represent each one of those words. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. And so you can see, uh, as that was a symbol of the Christians in the early church, and a statement of faith uh, of what they believed, that the creed follows suit, that they would announce and declare who they believe Jesus to be. And in declaring that, and in announcing that in the first century, set those Christians apart from the Jews. And as we as Christians in 2022 say that we believe in Jesus Christ his only Son, God's only Son, our Lord, that differentiates us not only from Jews, but from Muslims as well. It differentiates us from Hindus and Buddhists. It differentiates us from even cults like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. This is a, a statement packed full of, of truth and we want to consider Each of these words as we consider this line of the creed. So consider with me this morning the first uh, word, and in Jesus. Jesus. The the name that was given by God, delivered through the angels to um, Jesus' human parents, Joseph and Mary. Jesus. Jesus. Uh, when we say that we believe in Jesus, we're saying we, we believe in a real historical Jesus. Not just an idea of love, um, not just an idea about a Savior or someone who is sent from God. We're saying we believe in a real historical historical Jesus, one who lived and breathed, who walked this earth, who died on a cross, was physically taken down and buried in a tomb and raised to walk on the third day, who uh, 40 days later ascended into to heaven. We're talking about a living, breathing, eating Jesus, one who ate and drank with his followers. We're talking about A real historical Jesus. Uh, One who is more attested to in history than any other individual person throughout all of history. One whose writings are more attested to uh, and more authentic than any other writing throughout all history. Uh, And in fact, that the fact that, or believing that Jesus was a real historical person is not common to just Christians. There are others who believe that as well. Um, Jews would believe that Jesus was a real person, but they wouldn't believe that he was the Messiah. M- Muslims would believe that Jesus was a real historical person, but they wouldn't believe what we would go on to say. About that, in fact, one Jew uh, named Josephus was probably the most famous historian uh, of of the first century, and he says this in the Antiquities of the Jews, the Histories of the Jews. He says, at this time, there appeared Jesus, a wise man, if indeed he ought, if one ought to refer to him as a man. For he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure. And he gained a following, both among Jews and among many uh, of Greek origin. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so. For on the third day he appeared to them again alive, just as the divine prophets had spoken about these things and countless other marvelous things about him. And up until this very day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not died out. Josephus was a Jew. He agreed that there was a real historical person named Jesus that lived and did amazing things, but he didn't believe as we'll go on to say and believe that He was the Christ, that He was the Son of the living God, that He was our Lord. So when we say that we believe in Jesus, not only are we saying we believe in Jesus as a real historical person, we're also admitting that we need a Savior. For the very name Jesus means God saves. Yeshua it comes from the Old Testament, more familiar, named Joshua. God saves. So when you say that you believe in Jesus, you're saying that you believe in a God who saves, which means that you need a Savior. When you say that you believe in Jesus, you're admitting that you're a sinner, that you're guilty, and that if you stood before God, Are the Father of all who believe, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, you know that in that moment you need a Savior. You need a mediator. You need someone to stand between you and God, one who has uh, died on the cross for the sins of all who would believe and yet rose victorious over sin and death. When we say that we believe in Jesus... It's not only saying that we believe in a real historical person, saying that we also need a Savior and that Jesus, the the man, the God-man who walked this earth, is that Savior. But we also say, not only I believe in Jesus, but I believe in Jesus Christ, And while there were probably a lot of little Joshua's or Yeshua's running around in Jesus's day, when we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, we're not simply saying which of those Joshua's or Yeshua's or Jesus's we believe in. Because Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title. Christ is who we believe Him to be. And we're saying that Jesus is the Christ. That's the New Testament word for the Old Testament word Messiah. And this is exactly what Peter believed in Acts 2, verse 26, where he said, Let all the house of Israel, therefore know for certain that God has made Him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so when we say that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, we're saying that He's the Anointed One. We're saying that Jesus fulfilled the anointing offices from the Old Testament, those of prophet, priest, and king. And so if Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, if He's the anointed prophet, then He delivers God's Word. And as God's Son, He reveals God's Word in Himself. As the anointed priest of God, He makes sacrifice for sins, and He did so not by offering a lamb For his own sins, but because he was sinless, he offered his own life, being the Lamb of God. As the anointed king, as God's Messiah, he has authority in heaven and on earth to guide and direct us. And yet he is with us always to the very ends of the age. You see, when we say that we believe in Jesus Christ, again, it differentiates us from specifically Jews. Jews who may believe that Jesus was a real historical person, but believe that he was a failed prophet, a failed priest, a failed king. That his words didn't ultimately come true. That he wasn't able to offer sacrifice. That he wasn't... He never became king of the Jews. For he died... On the cross, the Jews uh, do not any longer read passages like Isaiah 53 or or focus on Psalms like Psalm 22 that show that the Messiah would be a suffering servant or Psalm 22 that, that opens My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jews don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. They believe that He failed. They hoped. Some hoped that He would be, but in seeing that He died, they lost their hope. Many, even before He died, didn't believe in Him. And so they had Him crucified, as Peter made mention of in Acts 2, uh, 2.36. Uh, Paul makes this clear, as we saw in Romans chapter 9 through 11, that the Jews had been blinded to the mystery of who Jesus was. Because the Jews were blinded to the truth of who Jesus was as the Christ, the gospel, the good news that Jesus died and rose from the dead, was sent to the Gentiles for them to believe who Jesus was. And many believed. And many said, as we're saying today, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And that then differentiated those Gentiles from all of the pagan worshipers of Rome and of Greece, worshiping the false gods of their day and age. This is how we're to understand that when we say Jesus is the Christ Christ, we're saying that he is the fulfillment of everything that was said in the Old Testament. That we believe that Jesus is who the Jews were really anticipating and waiting for, who they were longing for, uh, waiting. They were uh, waiting for that advent of Jesus coming in, into the world. And Jesus, this is how Jesus, in fact, understood Himself. For when He, after He died and rose from the dead, and He met with His followers and even His disciples in Luke 24, it says that He took them back to the book of Moses, to the Psalms, and to the prophets, and interpreted to them the things in the Scriptures concerning Himself. And so Jesus took the Old Testament and showed these followers all the things in the Old Testament that proved that Jesus really was the Christ, the Son of the living God, our Lord. And so each word, as you can see, it differentiates us from uh, the, the rest of the world and all the other religions of the world. For we believe He's a real person. Uh, when we say Jesus, and yet that He's our Savior. We believe that He is the Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. But we also believe that Jesus is His only Son, or God's only Son, since God was referenced in the first couple lines. And, And since When you see God mentioned in the first couple lines and Jesus mentioned in the third, uh, what you'll see, though, is in the rest of the creed that Jesus is uh, the largest part of the creed. And that's rightly so. For as we uh, sang this morning, we're saved in Christ alone. And we are a Christ-centric, cross-centric, gospel-centric People. We are called Christians. And Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so this is why you see the creed um, highlighting uh, more of who Jesus is than the introduction of who God is and the conclusion of who the Holy Spirit is, though uh, we believe them to be one God the Father, God the Son. God the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons in what we call the Trinity. And so when we say God's only Son, like I've said uh, previously, we are saying several things and we're not saying several things. We're not saying, like Mormons, that Jesus is the physical, biological, if you will, Son of of God the Father and Mary. We're not saying, like Jehovah's Witnesses, that Jesus was the first created being. Nor are we saying, like Muslims, that Jesus was simply a virgin born prophet. No, instead, we are saying that Jesus is God the Son, one person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're the same in substance and equal in power and glory. We've even seen the Trinity present in three persons several times in the midst of Jesus' life in the Gospels. Consider early in Jesus' ministry at his baptism in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16, when Jesus was baptized. God the Son is obviously present in Jesus. Immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven, that is from God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, saying, this is my beloved Son. With whom I am well pleased. The Lord, God the Father, says the very same thing of Jesus later in his ministry in Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up onto a mountainside, and Elijah and Moses show up with him. And God the Father proves that Jesus is better than even Moses and Elijah. When he says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. We're saying, when we say that Jesus is God's Son, uh, we are saying, as Daniel said last week, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are the uncreated creators. As Daniel pointed out in Colossians 1.16, regarding Jesus, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And as Graham read this morning from Hebrews chapter 1, and saved me some time (laughs) this, this morning, Jesus is God's Son. God spoke through prophets in the past, but now He's spoken ultimately and finally in His one and only Son. He'd go on to say even that His one and only Son, Jesus, was sent uh, to bring about many other sons to glory in Hebrews 2.18, which is why the author of Hebrews says that Jesus in Hebrews 7:25 is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Jesus is God's Son. The Apostle John makes this abundantly clear in the opening to his gospel as the uncreated creator. Jesus call, uh, John calls Jesus the Word and says that the Word Uh, Says In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When we say that Jesus is God's only son, we're not saying it's his physical born son, but we're saying that he is God's only begotten son. We're saying that Jesus has always enjoyed a father-son relationship with God the Father in eternity past, in the present, and will in to etern- eternity future. We're saying that though Jesus, God's Son, took on flesh, as John would go on to say in John chapter 1, verse 14. Again, using word for Jesus, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And no one has ever seen God, listen, the only God, that is Jesus, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Or consider one of the Bible's most famous verses in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. We believe as Christians that Jesus is God's only Son. Jesus proved this with his seven I Am statements in the Gospel of John. Jesus proved this by receiving worship himself, proving that he was God, specifically the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And this is something though that the apostles, the scriptures make clear, the apostles' creed affirms, and yet it has been challenged time and time again over the years. And so put on your church history hat for just a bit, and and I want you to consider because the same heresies are being believed right here and right now in our culture regarding who Jesus is. So in the 300s, the Roman Emperor Constantine, um, declaring Christianity the national faith, called together uh, many of the leaders of the church from around the known world, the Roman Empire at that time, um, called them together in the city of Nicaea, in the Council of Nicaea in 325, to unify the church and its doctrine— Uh, and to define the church's understanding on the Trinity, who God was, specifically God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this was important because of the rising heretical views of that day and age, specifically of a man named Arius, or what would become known as Arianism, the former Arianism. Uh, He believed that God the Father and Jesus were heterousios, which would mean of a different substance. That they were different from one another. God was God and Jesus was not. That they were different substances. This is what Arius believed and this is what he was sp- spreading around. He believed that he was God-like, even a little g God, but not God himself. And yet he was rejected in his home country of Egypt, and so he moved to Asia Minor to begin spreading his views. Athanasius, on the other hand, believed, uh, also from Egypt, held fast that God the Father and Jesus were homoousius of the same substance, that God the Father was God and that Jesus, God's Son, was just as much God as God the Father was, as would be the Holy Spirit. And so when time came for this council to convene, Athanasius was chosen to speak against Arius. And after their Uh, speeches were made and a vote was in. The numbers were 300 to 2 in favor of the view that Jesus was God. The same substance of the Father. And Arius was decried as a heretic. And Athanasius later became the bishop of Alexandria. And from there we get another famous creed, the Nicene Creed, which clearly defines Jesus as God, specifically as God the Son. But if you thought Arius was going to just go away quietly, you are mistaken, for he continued to spread his views, and his views continued to arise, so that in the year 381, another emperor, Theodosius I, had to call another council, this time in Constantinople which is now called Istanbul. And I could sing you the song, but I'll pass on it for now. Uh, They called together another council to redefine or to affirm the definition that was given earlier in Nicaea and to denounce those who believed otherwise. And this time, a man named Apollinarius and his Apollinarian views had risen that Jesus couldn't have two distinct natures and be both God and man at the same time. For when we say that we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, we believe that not only is Jesus God, but that He took on human flesh and became both God and man. Truly God and truly man at the same time. Of which Apollinarius said, that can't be. He can't be both God and man at the same time. It's impossible. And yet, he's God. God can do the impossible. Uh, And so, Apollinarius believed that uh, the Logos, the Word of God, came into Jesus, who was just a simple, sinful man, and drove out his sinful nature for a time and became a kind of middleman between God and man. And this was his views, Apollinarius' views. And, and yet the council con- convened in Constantinople and denounced this view and upheld the view of the Bible and the apostles which says that Jesus was fully God and fully man. One that's called the hypostatic union of Jesus, that he was both God and man at the same time. This is something that Philippians chapter 2 goes into such beautiful detail describing Jesus, who was God, taking the form of a man. Listen in Philippians 2, verse 5. The Apostle Paul says to the church at Philippi, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God or was God himself, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Jesus was God, and Jesus was the God-man. And so the council at Constantinople affirmed and even clarified the Nicene Creed to read like this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible. "...and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And if time allowed me I could go on and tell you about the council of Chalcedon which had to be called to convene and speak against even more heretical views and say something very similarly of who Jesus was. This these ideas have been attacked by people and um, cults and even other religions from the time that Jesus claimed to be the God-man during his time on earth. And yet they're something that we need to hold fast to because they're clearly taught in God's Word and are continuing to be uh, attacked in our day and age. This is why in some of our newer creeds, the identity of Jesus is even more clearly defined. This is why, in some of the catechisms, even the one that we have available for you uh, to, to use in your own life or with your children, it asks the question, "Why must Jesus be fully God?" and the answer is because his divine because of his divine nature his obedience and his suffering would be perfect and effective. And then it asks the question, well, why must Jesus be fully man? The answer is that so that in his human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. These things have been attacked since Jesus was alive, and they're still being atta- attacked now, which prove that Solomon was right when he said in Ecclesiastes 1.9, there's nothing new under the sun. These things continue to arise, which make it important for us as Christians to be aware of them so that we will remember that Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. For there are people that hold fast to those same ideas uh, that Arius or that Apollinarius hold to. Namely, in our day and age, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. We need to be able to not be tricked, not be deceived, and not believe them when they say that they're Christians too, For we have a very different understanding of who Jesus is and also should propel us in our evangelism to be able to share clearly with them who Jesus is from God's Word so that they might believe upon not simply a historical Jesus or a Jesus who's not God and unable to save, but a Jesus who can save them. But lastly, the creed, that line of the creed says that we believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And when we say that Jesus is Lord, we're saying that He's sovereign over us because He's Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as Lord, He rules and He reigns over us. And He has the authority to do so. And the question is, is will we respond to Him? As Lord. So many people want Jesus as their Savior and are unwilling to submit to, the, to Him as their Lord. But you can't have one without the other. You can't have Jesus as your Savior without submitting to Him as your Lord. It doesn't work that way. Jesus made that abundantly clear uh, when He said, to deny yourselves, to take up your cross, and to follow me. Repent and believe in the good news of the gospel. Paul would go on in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But even Jesus would say to those who came to him and said Jesus have we not done great things in your name have we not followed you Jesus said in Matthew 7:21 Not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven And so we have to consider have We believed in Jesus? Have we believed in Jesus as the Christ, the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament and the one who will fulfill the promises of the New Testament? Have we believed in Jesus Christ, his only son, a Jesus who is God, equal with God the Father and God the Spirit, a Jesus who is both God and man, who took on flesh and was tempted and tried like we are and yet remained sinless, and is able to sympathize with us? Have we believed in him in such a way that we have believed him to be and made him our Lord? In such a way that we've submitted to him, bowed to him, laid down our lives before him as he first laid down his life for us. We have to consider that. We can't just have Jesus as our Savior and not make him our Lord. For if we do so, we've proven that he is unable to save us. But if we believe that Jesus is Savior, then we will rightly make him our Lord as well we need to ask ourselves the question that Jesus asked His disciples uh, what others were saying of Him. And in several of the Gospels, Jesus comes to His disciples and, and says, Who do people say that I am? To which the disciples respond, Well, some say you're a prophet of old. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist, even raised from the dead. And that's what other people believe about Jesus. But then Jesus presses in closer to the heart and say, says, but, but who do you say that I am? Now, now, okay, that's what the world says. We've talked about Muslims. We've talked about Jews. We've talked about Jehovah's Witnesses And Mormons, that's what they believe about Jesus. We've talked about what Christians believe about Jesus. But what about you? Who do you, if if Jesus were to stand before you and ask you that very same question, whether you're an adult or a child alike, who do you say that I am? Would you say, like Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, My Lord, would you respond like that? And if you would respond like that, would your life prove that? Would your life prove if someone were to just watch your life and listen to your words, would they say that is one of those Christians who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? That is one of those Christians who has made Jesus their Lord, No one else rules or reigns over them. No one else guides them and directs them. No one else offers them help. No one else promises them salvation. Is that what the world would say about you? Is that what your children would say about you? Kids, is that what your parents would say about you? That you're one who believes Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, your Lord, And if not, why would you not make him your Lord today? Make him your Savior today. Believe him to be the Christ, the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the past and in the future. Believe him to be God's only son, God of God, man man of man. Believe him today for your hope and for your salvation. I opened, considering the words that were said at Queen Elizabeth's funeral. Consider what words would be said at your funeral. Would words of hope from the Scriptures of who Jesus is and all of the promises of those who repent and believe be echoed at your funeral? Will they be echoed at your children's funeral? Will they be echoed at your co-workers' funeral, your neighbor's funeral, your family member's funeral? For if they wouldn't be said at your funeral today, why would you not make a decision to trust Christ today and make that your hope and let those truths be resounding at your funeral one day? If those truths wouldn't be said at your family member's funeral, your co-worker's funeral, your neighbor's funeral, why would you not show that Jesus is your Lord who's commissioned and commanded us to go out and to make disciples of all nations? Take that gospel to those who don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's one and only Son, Savior and Lord and proclaim Him to be that in hopes that they too would respond in faith as you have. We ought to consider Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? And once we've responded that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, our Savior and Lord, as those Christians of early days did themselves, we ought to go out and to live as if we really believe that to be the truth. Knowing that we'll stand before Jesus, not wanting to hear him say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing who you are to us. Most clearly in your one and only son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Jesus, thank you for willingly leaving heaven, taking on flesh, faithfully living a sinless life, sacrificially laying down your life on the cross, but victoriously after being buried, rising from the dead on the third day. Jesus, we worship you. We praise you as the Son of God. And Holy Spirit, I thank you for revealing who Jesus is to us through your Word, the Scriptures, through your people who have shared it with us in the past, in our homes, maybe in a church, through a class or a sermon. Thank you for revealing who you are in the person and work of of Jesus in our hearts to take off the shackles from our eyes and to unmute our ears to revive and give us new hearts to believe these things to be true as we've called upon you to save us. Jesus, we believe in you and we want to worship you in song together this morning, but we also want to worship you as we leave this place, making you our Lord, submitting to you, following you, obeying you, honoring and glorifying you in all that we do. Holy Spirit, help us to do that. I ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's stand. Let's praise him who is the Christ the Son of the living God, our Lord.